0: Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science research methods in practice. In this episode, we talk with Vincent Rossigno, sociologist at The Ohio State University, about using multiple methods to research historical inequality. Using the case of the Sioux Massacre at Wounded Knee, he describes how the ghost dance movement preceded this massacre, and ultimately answers empirical and theoretical questions about how powerful state actors justify inequality. Using archives, correspondence, and qualitative and quantitative analyses, Vinny and his research team found that officials of the Office of Indian Affairs and federal politicians amplified ethnocentric and threat frames, using the Sioux ghost dance as central to this argument. Force against the Sioux was consequently portrayed as justifiable, which increased the likelihood of this massacre. This unique project sheds light on the value in using multiple approaches to answer a sociological question. Welcome to the podcast, and today we're here to talk about mixed or multiple uh, methods. So if you're going to introduce this approach to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it, how would you describe it?
1: Well, I would describe it as sort of um, uh, an art or a craft within sociology that is uh, using or blending different types of research methodology to get at different parts of the same question. Um, So, you know, many of us in sociology are interested in in broad patterns or empirical relationships, right? That's sort of the scientific way of thinking about the world. How does one variable affect or does one variable affect another variable? My sense is that quantitative uh, uh, methods, which are great and I love, are really effective at capturing the empirical relationship between an independent variable and a dependent variable, what they are probably less ideal uh, for is getting at why or how that relationship exists. What is going on there that causes one variable to uh, affect another variable? And I think there um, we have really a treasure trove of more qualitative, historical, ethnographic, archival uh, methods that can kind of fill in that black box, that can explain why there is a relationship between X and Y, not just if there is a relationship. So I guess all in all, I, I generally tend to describe... Uh, a multi-method approach to sociology as as a sort of a a creative endeavor, mixing methods in such a way that gives you a fuller sense of uh, relationships that exist in the social world.
0: That's excellent. And we're going to look at a specific project uh, you've been working on, which is your research um, on the Wounded Knee Massacre and the Ghost Dance Movement that mm-hmm. preceded it. And we use this as a way to kind of understand how this approach works. So why don't we start by talking about what your your central questions were and then how you designed a project around those questions.
1: Sure. Well, you know, my uh, I have always had an interest, obviously, in inequality in general, historical or contemporary inequality and how it sort of reproduced produces over time. Um, One of the sub-questions that's always intrigued me is how uh, particularly um, elites, it might be elite actors in any institutional domain, but in in the the case of this paper it was uh, the state itself, uh, that is the government, federal and local governments, how do they justify or legitimate uh, the sort of doing Of inequality, or even at the most extreme, the doing of violence toward toward uh, a a population, even if it's their own population. Um, uh, The Wounded Knee massacre uh, was an intriguing question, in part because sociologists, for some reason, have never really dealt with it effectively, um, but also because it's just a, a Um, Tremendously important moment in American history and Native American history. Um, So uh, I thought, hey, why not? (laughs) <laughs> Why not me? Why not me? Let me take a shot. But I should say that these questions that, that we deal with in this particular paper are broader than than just the particular case we're looking at. Again, it's about how uh, elites or powerful actors within a society uh, could sort of justify the doing of inequality with violence being the m- most extreme uh, sort of version. And I mean, we can think about this question as being relevant Across all historical time, you know how did how did the pharaohs justify doing violence? How do kings justify doing violence? How do democratic governments justify doing violence or inequality relative to their own populations? And so the, the question is very broad. Um, although this specific article um, takes uh, the Ghost Dance and the Wounded Knee massacre of the Sioux in eighteen ninety as their case in point. This was the question I went in with and relative to, you know, I had the question. The question came first and the the theoretical foundation was there. I sort of was speculating on uh, what might be going on and I wondered how, how, Uh, whether or not we could actually study this. I mean, it happened in 1890. How do you you study something as a sociologist? Certainly historians go back and and document and and dig up material. So really the, the, the theoretical question was there, the substantive question was there, and now it was a matter of figuring out whether or not it could be studied. So in that vein, there was a lot of detective work, which is what sociologists really, at least those who start out with their questions first, Um, uh, you know, they get excited about their questions and then they go, hmm, I wonder if there's data. I wonder if there's any way of analyzing this. So after some detective work, uh, a a group of uh, graduate students and I, uh, uh, Julia Counselor, Salvatore Restifo, and Josh Getzko, all assistant professors now, happily, uh, you know, dug around and we found that the U.S. National Archives uh, contained correspondence between government actors military actors office of indian affairs officials all correspondence uh, pertaining to and prior to the wounded Indian massacre so and i was i was shocked i i thought okay am i going to have to go to dc to find this data am i going to be sort of digging in these old shelves and i talked to an archivist there who said no we could actually send you the data and I, and i went what <laughs> And they said, sure, we could send you the data. So they sent us a, a handful of microfish reels that contained all letter correspondence pertaining to the Sioux during this time period from all governmental actors. That's sort of where it started. That's that was only that's one piece of data actually in a broader, a broader project that's really rich qualitative data, hundreds of letters and correspondence and telegrams and things like that between these actors. But there were other issues I was interested in as well that make their way into the the article in some way, shape, or form. Um, And that includes... Historical research, reading secondary historical research, um, doing a sort of semi-geographic analysis about the spread of what became known as the ghost dance prior to the Wounded Knee Massacre and plotting that geographically on a map to see if this this dance itself might have given politicians the, the leverage they needed to sort of vilify the Sioux. But that would re- that actually required the, that the ghost dance actually reached them. That is, that they engaged in it. So we mapped it and we said, yep, there, there it is. And, and the historical materials confirmed that large numbers of Sioux engaged in this particular dance. So I wa- really wondered to myself, was there a linkage between this uh, spiritual uh, practice and uh, how the government responded?
0: And so as you're bringing these materials together um, for this analysis, what were sort of the, the big takeaway points um, that you wrote about in this article or some of the core findings?
1: Sure. The core findings, you know, sort of confirmed suspicions uh, to some extent. I mean, we, we all, I guess I could talk about the, the actual detail of the, the sort of analyses in a, in a, in a minute, but relative to the core findings, um, it was that the Federal, particularly federal politicians and the Office of Indian Affairs, uh, sure enough, vilified uh, the Sioux in various ways just prior to the massacre, or say, two months, three months leading up to the massacre, were sort of essentially building like building a case for why violence was justifiable in some way, by vilifying them, by suggesting that they were savage, immoral, that they were not assimilating quick enough to the uh, sort of American way of doing things, and that this this thing they were participating in called the ghost dance was sort of the conduit by which the government was uh, making these claims. Now, that might not come as as too much of a surprise, um, although sociologists tend not to sort of study elite claims-making and, and its impact on inequality that much. What was really surprising to us going in, or as, as the analyses were unfolding, was that, uh, and especially as we ran some statistical analyses on content-coded correspondence, is that the military did not show up as the bad guy here. And that's a little sort of interesting because the sort of American narrative of the West is that you know it was battles between you know the Indians and the cowboys or between the cavalry and, and, uh, and Native American tribes, and so that 's what the regression analysis suggested was that it was the federal politicians in office and office Indian affairs officials, but it, the regression itself, the quantitative analyses left this question: why were the military different? What was going on they weren 't vilifying. Uh, the Sioux, according to these documents. And that really required us to go back, to take a step back and dive back into the qualitative data and figure out what was going on. And as it turned out, the, the, the military, I mean, really quite strikingly, in some ways, almost take the side of the Sioux <laughs> against the federal government and Office of Indian Affairs and make claims, including military generals, um, stating very explicitly that they think the ma- major problem uh, with uh, Sioux assimilation, acclimation, is that the government um, has. Um, violated its own treaties with the Sioux. We're not delivering needed and, and agreed upon rations to the Sioux. And we're really acting in uh, um, less than honest ways. And that this is where some of the um, uh, Sioux agitation was coming from. We would have never have been able to come to that conclusion had we relied solely on the regression analyses. Um, in part because the regression analyses just say that the military did not vilify the Sioux relative to federal actors. It really required a re-immersion into the qualitative material to figure uh, what was going on. So. Those are those, and it it is intriguing, and it it roughly uh, corresponds with some uh, um, interpretations by historians as well, which is which is a um, good a a good thing. (laughs) Um, But those are really the 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 baseline findings. I could say more specifically um, that uh, that that the justifications that were used by federal officials and Office of Indian Affairs officials did two things simultaneously. One is they vilified the Sioux by just um, um, disc- talking about them as um, com- problematic, as essentially criminally inclined. Uh, certainly, as savage in some ways, uh, they talked about them as less than human, and we know that this happens uh, during moments uh, or prior, actually prior to moments of, of genocide more broadly. But they also amplified certain things. Um, they talk a lot about, essentially consistent with with notions of manifest destiny. They uh, sort of highlight the importance of of citizenship and full incorporation of. All people under the umbrella of the United States government. The importance of individual land ownership. They were celebrating the "quote unquote" American way of doing things while simultaneously uh, demonizing this this particular group. And and I suspect I suspect that dual dynamic of amplification and vilification happens all the time, <laughs> uh, by, by, by governments. And it also happens uh, via institutional leaders. So I happen to be also doing, you know, more contemporary work on, on, um, current day workplace discrimination uh, by gender, by race, by age, etc. And I essentially see organizational elites do the same thing to justify discriminatory actions. On the one hand, they vilify uh, the victims of the inequality, but then they amplify something that is sort of culturally appealing um, uh, uh, to most audiences.
0: You've mentioned this a bit already, but Um, You know, I'm wondering, as as you were designing this study, it was definitely topic-driven, but as you were thinking about all these different methodological approaches, you know, how did that fit into the framing of the topic, and did you consider other methodological approaches?
1: Sure. I mean, I I do a lot of thinking before. Every, every project, once once I have a, a, a sort of good sense of what the question is, I think I really, and I encourage this in my undergraduate students who are writing theses and my graduate students to uh, try to stay true to your question and not lose sight of what that question is when you're considering your data and your analyses and try to imagine before you just go digging around in data, try to imagine what the ideal data would be and then see if you could find it. Spend time digging around, make sure it's not there before you um, sort of give up on it. In the case of this project, we found really what I think is about the most ideal data you could possibly find given the question. Um, So the data we were set with, then the sort of second part of this is the sort of the methods The methods that we um, employ. And yeah, um, I thought about, we knew we wanted, for generalizability reasons, we wanted to sort of analyze them all systematically, all this letter correspondence by running sort of a regression analysis, seeing if there's a pattern out there, a relationship between the X and Y, like I started out um, mentioning. The question about what other method might be useful here, we did a couple of things we content coded these these uh, um, this letter correspondence by hand with a coding device to sort of systematize them. We read them all in detail. We engaged in narrative immersion—the most you can possibly engage in that kind of narrative immersion. Um, I thought about. Other, there's other software out there right now, certainly more qualitative software, like Vivo or Text Analyst or Qualrus or Hyper Research. There are all these programs out there that you could potentially use to analyze qualitative data, to sort of code it and then analyze it systematically. Um, but we, um, at some point early in the project, sort of decided against that, in part because we were so intrigued by these letters that we really wanted to read them ourselves. (laughs) I really wanted a deep understanding and there were 292 of them um, that preceded the massacre. And it wasn't an overbearing amount. And, um, all, all, four of us were so just intrigued with this particular case that we, we sort of opted that direction over, you know, putting them into a program that would sort of churn through text material and spit out some results. We wanted to hear the words that the, the, the people were using and almost practically put faces on on these words. Um, so yeah, there were there were options there. Um, There were also, there were some options relative to the question itself. Um, We contemplated very early on um, actually understanding this from the Sioux side um, and whether or not there was data or narrative oral history data from the Sioux uh, in terms of uh, their take on uh, what happened specifically. But uh, we, we pulled back from that for several reasons one one of which is it really it got away from our core question which is how do powerful actors justify the doing of inequality that's not to say that um how inequality is experienced from the suicide in this case is not a totally valid uh sort of research question but um we honed in on our question and we used that specific question to really constrain ourselves in terms of the type of data we looked at and even the time period that we, we um, took into account. Some of the archival data that we had at our disposal and interview data happened after the massacre. And we decided to circumvent that and say, let's save that for another day for the question of how do elites... Justify violence after they've done the violence. It's it's a different question. And there are also certain potential biases that would emerge in that data, retrospective biases. Asking people who engaged in violence, why did you engage in violence last year, um, uh, poses certain analytic challenges.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your theoretical framing, too. How does that, how do you incorporate your theoretical stance or kind of you know, choose what sort of theoretical literature you're going to draw upon as you're designing a project with so many interesting components?
1: <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I can quite answer it. I mean, really, there's, there's, you know, as you're working your way through theoretical literatures, I think there are certain literatures that probably resonate a little bit more with uh, your, your your take on how the world works. Um and uh, in the case of this this particular paper, I knew I had to draw from, from um, political sociology, on the uh, which grapples with the role of the state uh, in particular. But since I was also I'm also interested in sort of elite framing and culture more broadly, I knew there was another literature there th- that laid out some possibilities. For how sort of a, a elite framing translates into inequality, and then there were very specific theoretical literatures on race, ethnicity, and colonization and genocide um, that were theor- that are theoretical, but that really. In some ways, all the three literatures I've mentioned, the political literature, the cultural literature, and then the more specific literature on um, genocide, colonization, race, ethnicity, they really aligned with each other in, in interesting ways, although they don't tend to speak to one another. Um, I saw them as, as sort of all relevant to this particular case. Now, there are other there are certainly other theoretical perspectives that I had to grapple with in my head, other theoretical possibilities, and they're kind of built in to the front end of, of the, the article, more materialist sort of conceptions about how the world works. I mean, the, the U.S. government wanted to take land away from the Sioux, Right, So one could say, well, the Wounded Knee Massacre happened because the Sioux were unwilling to negotiate a treaty, so the government just went in there and did violence. Partially true, uh, and, and we own up to that in the, the front end of this, um, but what we're suggesting is that sociology could be helped if it incorporated uh, more um, explicit political and cultural um, sort of dimensions of inequality. Um, and that, that tended to be the, the, really the core of the empirical focus. So I'm a believer in, in uh, as much theory as you can get, but when you are honing your particular question, certain theoretical perspectives will be a little bit outside of the sort of sphere of, of, of pertinence to your question, and some theoretical perspectives will be a little more central. Theories, theories are tools by which to use the world and when you when you're going into a project you have to figure out which of these tools must i have and must i need to get the job done and which are you know sort of somewhat tangential and and you 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 know stuff your current tool bag with 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 the the most pressing
0: yeah oh i like that a lot i think it's a great answer um, so you see so you get literally in the mail this like microfilm yeah um and so I imagine there's some difficulties and challenges in, in deciding how to, you know, actually do the research. So why don't you give us some insight on yeah. some of the barriers and some of the techniques, both sort of. What was the challenge, and then what ended up working for you guys?
1: Well, I mean, there are really, really basic challenges, like reading microfiche reels, <laughs> uh, which is which is no easy task, especially when, I mean, it sounds really cool, right? I get to look at letters that were written in the 1800s, um, but um, a lot of them are faded, or if anyone has seen, some of them are written in that really fancy, loopy script that's almost hard for a contemporary person to read, even though it's in script English. Um, so there, there's that, you know, in finding the machine at the library that can handle a microfish reel and making a PDF copy that you can then refer to on your computer at some point. Um, so those, those, those are really sort of, uh, nitty gritty, getting your hands dirty, uh, challenges, uh, with any kind of, um, sort of archived uh, uh, research or narrative data, archive narrative data, uh, to be sure. But then there's the sort of nitty gritty of okay, now that I have this data, what do I what do I do with it? What do we what do we do? I mean, we have 290 letters. Uh, so what do we do? Do we just read them? Um, and the answer there, at least for me, is no. That um, as sociologists, we we try to systematize the data to make it usable. Uh, For us in some way. And one way to do that is to create some kind of coding device. That is a piece of paper or a couple of pieces of paper that lay out the sort of the themes of interest that you're looking for in a given document. And then having yourself and your collaborators go through these 200 in this case 290 documents but it certainly can be way more in the case of research and systematically code each on this particular document so you can sort of compare and look for patterns between them now that that's a, that's a, a cumbersome task if you treat it seriously because sometimes you will make up a, a coding device and you'll you'll give it to yourself and your collaborators and you'll say let's go let's start coding and you get like three cases in and you go this coding device is not working there are themes here that I have to add or I'm coding every single device exactly the same on this one so we really don't need that one so there's kind of a test retest like there is with surveys with coding devices you go through and you see if it works with, with your um, your colleagues and, and, and you go through some iterations of refinement there to make sure you have it right and then there's also the possibility that you know um, potential bias will exist for one coder versus the other coder. They that they tend not to see things uh, the same uh, the same ways or tend not to code the same ways. So we um, uh, in in this case and uh, the, the the spurring of a, a, a colleague of mine. Uh, uh, Randy Hodson, who wrote a really great um, uh, Sage, Sage one of the Sage Methods books on documenting archival accounts, uh, really talks about how to treat seriously this sort of iterative process of of coding and cleaning a coding device, and that included a reliability test. That is. Having one person code a number of documents and then having someone else on the team code those same exact documents to see if they are, you know, perfectly overlapping in the way they coded or if there's kind of slippage. One person could interpret the qualitative data this way. The other one could interpret it that way. And so we went through a lot of that. Um, And that, that's not, that's not easy or simple, but it, what it does in the end is it, it creates significant confidence that, that the, the coding in the end, you have it right. And in our case, I think the overlap, by the time we were uh, done with a sort of clean coding device, the overlap, the reliability between our coders was uh, almost 90%. So about 90% of the time, any one of the two of us would have coded uh, the document exactly the same. And where, where it wasn't the same, we would go back. And sit together and say, mm, "Why did you code it this way? Why did you code it this way?" And try to sort of reach a, a consensus on how it should be coded. That's the that's the sort of uh, the nitty gritty.
0: And um, when we're teaching our methods classes, you know, we really push the idea of thinking about issues of generalizability and validity. Um, how do you think about that using this sort of multi tiered approach?
1: Well, on the generalizability, I think like, like all sociological research, these are sort of questions that you, you have to confront and you should confront in some way. Uh, on the generalizability uh, sort of question, uh, we work very hard in this article, and I do in, in any kind of case or even qualitative-centered article to um, make very clear what the, the generalizable claims are. So, you know, in this article is about state repression and the Sioux massacre at Wounded Knee, but there is sort of clear discussion both in the front end and the back end of this that the processes that we're outlining are hardly specific just to this particular case. And I think... Qualitative researchers and ethnographers and historical case-oriented researchers um, often have to struggle with this particular question, in part because we have such rich detail about our case, right?, or our cases that, of course, it's different in some ways than any other case out there. Um, But our job as, I think, social scientists is to to look for and think really rigorously about the um, sort of generalizable, what can we learn from this case that's transportable to other cases in the U.S., historically, outside of the U.S., etc. So we struggle with generalizability a bunch. In terms of validity, Um, I think, you know, I think in some ways the questions of validity are what pushed me to become more of a multi-method researcher. I came out of graduate school, you know, running HLM models on national data, which are powerful statistical models about the relationship between X and Y. And so I can come away with confidence going, yep, there is a relationship between x and y, or x1, x2, x3, and y. But I was never completely confident on the validity side as to uh, whether either the variables I was using were really capturing exactly what I thought they were capturing, or I was uncertain about what the relationship was, or how, or why there was a relationship there. And I think that uh, various types of more qualitative uh, approaches can both give us sort of confidence in the validity of of the variables we tend to choose, as well as um, bolstering confidence in our interpretation of what that relationship is exactly. So, so it. I mean, I I still engage in quantitative work. I engage in qualitative work, but increasingly my work is sort of taken on a bit of a Multi-methodological flavor, um, and I think that's part of it. I feel I feel more confident um, uh, in some ways um, when I can pull it off, pull off this blending of, of methods.
0: Yeah, um, and I think this will be an interesting question, especially given the historical context of this project. Um, But we often talk about positionality. So how did you think about your own, like as you said earlier, as being a contemporary person, how did you take that position into account?
1: This project really germinated when I was on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, uh, doing a cross-country drive with my children. And we were... We went to two museums that were essentially across the street from each other. One was on the reservation, Sue owned, run. The other was on the other side. Uh, or outside of the reservation. One described this as the war at Wounded Knee, and the other that is on the Sioux Reservation described it as the Wounded Knee Massacre. And, of course, as a sociologist, I found this totally intriguing. You know, 100-and-something years later, totally different interpretations of a really pivotal historical moment. And I don't know if you know this, but um, outside of the burial site at Wounded Knee, the U.S. government had put up a plaque at some point that said, you know, where the battle at Wounded Knee occurred, and that plaque was defaced, and, and war was crossed off, and a massacre was written in. And uh, before we, we got to leave there, I got to, to uh, have conversations with, with um, some Sioux in particular about this, this particular moment, and they actually encouraged me to sort of learn about it, that is, read some real history about it, and to dig around and see if there were, you know, firsthand accounts still available from that time period, um, and that sort of meant a lot, and it sort of inspired all the energy that went into this. But it, I would say that sort of positionality-wise, it it also at some I think I mentioned a little earlier at some point we considered. Um, doing this analysis, but from the suicide, from the victims, um, the victim's side. And uh, I was a little bit, I, I think we all were, got, were a little bit uncomfortable in part because obviously the real victims, the the, the, the most direct victims were massacred. Um, so there is no sort of account from their particular point of view. And then there are some um, Native American study scholars, um, D Brown, who wrote uh, the, the now, um, famous book, bury my heart at wounded knee, did tell this story from the suicide. Um, and I thought, I thought, you know, I'm not, it, it, who better than a member of that group themselves to tell their story. And they have oral histories and some written histories. Um, uh, but I thought, uh, from, from our side, as sociologists, we, we could and probably should focus on the more uh, general issue of power from the top down and how the po- how power was activated in this instance. So I see th- I see what we've done is complementary to, to uh, first-hand accounts from the Sioux themselves. But I would say, you know, my position as a, a, a white male scholar, uh, I don't think I don't think I would have been actually comfortable telling that other story unless, unless I um, dove, dove into that population and their oral histories uh, deeper. And, and D. Brown had already done it, and, and several other scholars have done it as well. Um, uh, for, um, from the Native American studies side, now, and we, we certainly you know read all of their their work uh, in engaging in this particular project, and, and see this as a, a complement uh, to what they were doing. So I, I do struggle with, I certainly struggle with these issues in, in sort of an ongoing way and uh, with a lot of qualitative work, again, historical or contemporary, if at all possible, if and when at all possible, whether it's contemporary or historical work, I like to uh, have conversations with the populations that I'm studying to, to see if my findings, my punchlines, et cetera, uh, resonate with those particular experiences, if possible, Um uh, what, or I dive headlong into oral histories if they're no longer alive and read their, their oral histories very carefully to make sure that, you know, my advantage status as a sociologist who's standing a million miles away on the third floor of a building is, is not skewing, uh, you know, real events in the real world.
0: And that's actually a very nice lead into my next question, which is, what was your intended audience um, and, and how does that shape the process?
1: That's uh, you know <laughs> that's a great question. I like I always like to think uh, uh, first and foremost the intended audience. G- given that I'm publishing in a scholarly journal and a scholarly journal that's connected to sociology is the academic audience. Uh, for first and foremost, although I like to f- uh, fancy myself as someone who could maybe sometimes write in a in a manner that uh, people not only well that people. Outside of sociology in academia, could read and appreciate what we're doing. Um, so I would hope, in the case of this paper, for instance, that Native American studies scholars, political sociologists, historians would read it. And I work really hard. Although this is obviously always a balancing act, trying to write in a way that the the you know the average lay person. Can read it and appreciate it, at least some of it. You know, where we tend to be heavier in our jargon or a little more complex in our methodological discussions. Um, but I, I work hard to try to to um, to write in a in a in a broader a broader way. At least with this article, we have not written a, a more um, uh, public-centered uh, sort of version of this. Although I think there there are some already out there, so I don't know if there is the need in other of my work on, on discrimination, um, I've, I've written some pieces that are intended for broader audiences, broader public audiences, who, who I think um, um, uh, kind of would ap- would appreciate a kind of a sociological approach to things that they may be experiencing.
0: You know, we, we like to always kind of check our work too and, and think about the limitations. So what are some of the limitations to um, this sort of approach that you take,
1: relative to historical work, there are clear limitations. I mean, I mentioned earlier there might be there'll always be retrospective biases if you're using people's reflective accounts of what happened. The, the the kind of bummer in it all in in historical research that stretches back is you you're you're, you're sort of constrained to what survives data-wise. Um, you can't go back and interview these people, although I would love to. Um, um, so that's, that's, a, a real constraint, but, you know, in really over the last decade, what has been amazing is the, um, the archiving of oral histories that stretch back 200 years, um, at the national archives, at state archives, at, at state, um, state university archives, um, that, Give us um, certainly a leg up relative to social scientists of the past in terms of um, getting the closest we can get to to the actual actors that we're studying um, and and they even make it easier for you now i mean there's I talked about microfish reels earlier well i've been engaging in an even more historical project with one of my graduate students who's now um, um, has graduated James Davis were looking at the, um, the trail of tears, which happens, uh, among Northeastern tribes, approximately 50 years before the Wounded Massacre. And I went to the archives again. I said, what do you have? And they said, Oh, we can send you the, the documents. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. We're talking about like 1830, 1840. And they sent the documents to me, but this, but this time the documents were on, um, uh, a CD. <laughs> and, and they had all been scanned already. So, so this is, you know, one of the, the challenges, um, certainly for historical research, is sort of reaching back and having conversations with, with generations of the past and f- trying to find out how you can best do that. With uh, multi-method work, more, more generally, it's finding complementary um, sources of quantitative and qualitative data. That really can help you, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, help you blend insights on the same question.
0: So if uh, if you were to have a a graduate student or a colleague approach you and say, hey, I've got this great idea for this multi-method study, um, what would would be kind of your practical advice to them as they were getting started or some of the kind of tricks of the trade?
1: Uh, My practical advice is don't be practical. Be, be creative and think really big at first and really think about what would the ideal data be uh, for you to get at this question. And really, before you do groundwork looking for the data, write, even if it helps to write down on a piece of paper, what would the ideal type of data or types plural, of data be uh, before you um, um, sort of get at this. I'm, I'm a sort of a believer that there's a lot of data out there. You just have to find it. You might have to do the grunt work and the cleaning work uh, to do it. Um, I think it's just ne- important never to lose sight of the theoretical question. It's underlying complexity, especially uh, when you're comp- um, contemplating data and methods. And then be, what's the right word, Ru- ruthless, relentless be relentless in the pursuit of that data before you give up and you settle for easy prepackaged data sets. Um, I think some of the best, most exciting sociology comes out of that relentlessness. Somebody who's willing to dig around, to find data that, uh, or multiple sources of data that suit the, the complexity of the theoretical question they're asking and then is willing to actually do the, uh, get their hands dirty and do the, do the work to, to gather that data, to clean that data, and to put it in a form that is amenable to sociological analysis.
0: As we, uh, as we close our interview, um, we always like to end with a question of, you know, just to sum it up, what are sort of the main advantages to this approach um, as it is applied to your project or your work in general?
1: main advantages of, of multi-methodological work is it really can reveal uh, certain aspects of um, social structure and social relations um, that a singular approach just could not get at. Um, uh, it's, I think it's it's rich. We're also at a time point I think where we have so many um, potential methods at our disposal that could be fused together. Um, Regression analyses and in-depth qualitative, you know, for instance, in the case of this particular article, but I've also engaged in projects where we're blending qualitative interview data with network analysis. Um, you could do a thematic analysis uh, with some of the new software that's there. Um, it really is a, a sort of a promising period uh, in sociology for people who want to be really creative and thorough uh, empirically in engaging the theoretical questions that are um, uh, most pressing in their minds. I think another advantage, and then I will tell you the disadvantages (laughs) if you want. um, uh, Another advantage is, at least for me, this kind of sociology is poignant. It's powerful. I um, not only enjoy doing it, but I feel like it's more important in a way because it, it in some ways puts a human face on some of the processes that we sometimes talk about in the abstract. Um, it puts a human face on the actors that we're talking about um, and gives me I think correspondingly a sense of uh, confidence in Verstein or you know understanding Now you know on the it's challenging though it, it takes time it, it requires confidence that you can find the types of data and integrate the types of methods you need so it really does, Require uh, a kind of creative mind uh, with some um, with some energy behind it to sort of to to um, you know be rigorous and relentless. Um, this is a little challenging, um, I think, for for good reasons. For especially graduate students or assistant professors, because um, you know there are pressures to publish out there, and you can't spend forever on one project. Um, but I would. It, for sure encourage uh, people, particularly you know the undergrad to grad ranks, to maintain a sort of commitment to creative, r- sort of rigorous thinking in uh, constructing uh, their projects. I think it's worth it, and sociology needs much more of it.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you joining us on the podcast and, and sharing your perspectives and experiences with us.
1: You're welcome. This was fun. On behalf of me, Kyle Green, and my co producer, Sarah Loggison, thank you for listening. And remember, please,
0: give methods a chance.